Hi, this is Oren. If you find these teachings useful and you'd like to learn more about my work, you can visit me online at orenjsofer.com or on social media at orenjsofer. Thanks so much. So it's traditional when offering a teaching to pay respects and acknowledge one's teachers at the beginning. And I'd like to do that this evening uh, by just chanting the homage to the Buddha, to kind of acknowledge my own teachers and also this, this lineage and, uh, and our first teacher. Namo tasa bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Buddhang Dhammang Sangang Namasami I'd like to begin by just saying a few words about how to listen to a Dhamma talk, particularly on a, a longer retreat like this, just to offer a few suggestions. There can be the tendency to listen to these talks with our cognitive mind, take in the information and the tips and try to get everything straight and squared away and know what to do and and all that's helpful. <clears throat> One of my first teachers, a um, man by the name of Anagarika Manindraji, used to say, there should never be any doubt about the practice. If you have any doubts about it, clear it up with the teacher. Ask. We should be very clear about what we're doing. And that's, that's very true. But there's only so much information you actually need to practice. This practice is very simple. Be aware of what's happening. And stay balanced. That's it. It's about meeting what's arising and staying balanced. Everything, everything else is just refinements on that. So really what we're doing is we're learning, we're learning how to live. The, the truth of the Dhamma is an embodied understanding. It's something that we have to come to know and feel and experience directly in our own mind and body, each of us. And so for that, the cognitive understanding is actually quite limited. You can read as many books as you like about how to ride a bike. Until you get on the bike, you're not going to know how to do it. It's the same with practicing Dhamma. 
We have to be in our skin, in the experience, feeling it from the inside, living it, feeling it out, finding how, how do I meet the moment, whatever that is, and stay clearly aware and balanced. So what that means is in listening to a Dhamma talk, there's, there's another way to listen, which is to listen with your heart. And to just trust that what you need to hear, what you need to receive, that your heart will get that. And that you don't need to, you don't need everything. You don't need all the ideas. So I just invite you as you listen, to listen from that place, if that, if that connects with you. Listen from the heart and just trust that you'll hear what you need to hear and it'll be there for you when you need it. One of the ways I like to think about this practice that comes from our tradition is it's, it's like a craft. There's a verse from the Dhammapada that says, irrigators channel water, fletchers straighten arrows, carpenters fashion wood, the wise train themselves. So it's a craft of the heart. We're learning to fashion, to shape our own heart and mind. We're always practicing something. So there are all these techniques, there are all of these tools and practices, loving kindness, awareness of breathing, body scanning, primary object, secondary object, walking meditation, all these different tools that we use to train the mind, to shape the heart. And they're very helpful, they're very important to understand how to, to understand the techniques. But in some way, what's more important than what we're doing in the practice, what technique we're using, is how we're using that technique. How are we using the tool? How are we practicing? What habits, what patterns, what drives are we bringing into the practice in terms of how we make effort? How we engage with the moment? How are we conditioning the mind, whatever tool we're using? I started practicing when I was relatively young. I was about 19. I kind of dove in head first. I went went to Asia and had the good fortune of uh, studying at a monastery in Budgaya. That's where I met Manindra, who's one of the kind of grandfathers in this this insight tradition. He was Joseph Goldstein's first teacher. Um, I know that at least one of you here met Manindraji, perhaps others. A really amazing being. And uh, when we were staying at the monastery, uh, I definitely could not sit like this when I first started for (laughs) half an hour or longer, uh, certainly not without pain. And so there was a yoga uh, class. One of the people who lived at the monastery would would teach yoga. And um, it was so frustrating, the yoga class for me. I remember being in tears. I just just did not understand how to move my body into those postures. <laughs> um, and a few years later, I um, 
went to uh, like a dance class and remember feeling the same feeling of feeling really frustrated and like, I can't do this and I can't figure it out. And I started to, to see this pattern that whenever there was something, particularly with my body, it was not very embodied when I was in my late teens and early 20s, whenever I tried to learn something with my body that I didn't quite know how to do, I would get very frustrated very quickly and kind of break down a little bit into tears. Because there's so much pressure I was putting on myself. I was, I was pushing and trying so hard and expecting like, I should be able to do this. I should be able to get it right away. I should know how to do this, even though I've never done it before. <clears throat> and one of, the, one of the gifts of this practice is seeing over the years how that's shifted. You know, being able to, um, many years later, start learning Qigong. And seeing at the beginning, I've been practicing Qigong now for, I don't even know, over 10 years. But at the very beginning, it was a similar pattern, even though it wasn't as strong, but still feeling frustrated when I couldn't get it. And um, at a certain point, I picked up the guitar and started to learn to play. And uh, it was a very different experience. I wasn't putting all this pressure on myself to get it right or thinking that I should know how to do it. And so it was just fun. And every time I'd be able to play a new chord, I, li- I like Bob Marley a lot. And so I, had a, I bought a Bob Marley songbook. And so every time I could get like one chord right, it would be like, oh, that's so awesome. <laughs> you know, and if I made a mistake, it didn't matter because I was just learning. A very different experience. So I took, um, I took a pottery, a ceramics class last year, just at the local art center here in Richmond where I live, just, just to do something different, kind of get out of my head. And it was a very similar experience. Um, you know, you, you, ceramics is very embodied. You know, to throw a pot on a wheel, you can't think about it. You have to do it. Your hands and your body need to learn how to do that. Um, and I remember, um, you know, just messing up and goofing around. And like, if it turned out weird, that was fine. Because I've never done this before. I'm learning, you know. And... Uh, Remember, I remember one or two other people in the class being so hard on themselves and feeling so frustrated, like, why can't I get this? And, you know, turning to one of them and saying, like, have you ever done this before? She's like, no. It's like, why do you think you should be an expert from day one? You know, give yourself a break. So how we do something is really important. And we can, we can add a lot of grief unnecessarily when we put pressure on ourselves. So one way of understanding meditation practice is the cultivation of positive qualities, of healthy states in the mind. The object of our awareness is actually not that important, whether it's the breath or sound or a step, a sensation, a thought, they're all just changing. It's the mind that meditates. And so what we're doing, the object is the foil to train the mind. So the techniques and the process of meditation is about strengthening certain factors, certain qualities in the mind. There there are two factors that I'd like to talk about tonight that are interrelated, and those are energy and effort. I'm mostly going to focus on effort, but since they're connected, I want to say a little bit about energy. There's something very um, important 
to each of us here. Or we wouldn't, we wouldn't be here. Very, very few people on this planet of seven billion that would do a month-long silent retreat. There's got to be something really important to want to do this. And anything worthwhile in life takes effort. It doesn't just come by itself. I want to read you um, a quote from the uh, German nun Ayakema, one of the great masters from the last, uh, last century. This is from a talk she gave. There's only one thing that's important to every being, and that is a peaceful and happy heart. It cannot be bought, nor is it given away. Nobody can hand it to someone else, and it cannot be found. Ramana Maharshi said, Peace and happiness are not our birthright. Whoever has attained them has done so by continual effort. To gain peace and happiness, one has to make unrelenting effort in one's own heart. One can't achieve it through proliferation, by trying to get more, only by learning to want less, becoming emptier and emptier until there is just open space to be filled with peace and happiness. As long as our hearts are full of likes and dislikes, how can peace and happiness find any room? So in this tradition, and particularly in the West, we talk a lot about relaxation. We talk a lot about non-doing. We talk a lot about receptivity rather than striving. And there's a good reason for that. Most of us have been conditioned to push really hard, to override our our innate sense of balance and to, and to add a lot of extra struggle, right? Like the way I was practicing yoga or trying to learn to salsa. <laughs> it's like, it gets really difficult when we're tight. And yet, we need to show up. So this is what I wanna talk about tonight is how do we make effort in a balanced way? So the first requirement is that we need energy. There's got to be gas in the tank. If we don't have energy, you can't apply effort. Effort is that application of energy. It's channeling it, putting it, directing it in a certain way. So the energy that we use in this practice needs to be sustainable. If we push, if we, if we try too hard, or put all of our energy in at once, we burn out. So you might notice if you're getting really tired or foggy by the afternoon, check and see, am I pushing too hard in the morning? So I'll just do a little experiment. I'm gonna ring the bell. I want you to listen to the sound and notice how much energy it takes to hear, to be mindful and, and aware of the sound. It takes a little bit of energy, right? It's not nothing. 
We actually have to pay attention. Did you have to try hard? No. That's the amount of energy we need to practice. It's subtle. It's just enough to be here, but no more. You put more energy and you overshoot. That's sustainable. The mind is naturally aware. You don't have to work hard to be aware. There's a story from the uh, early texts of a monk uh, who had been uh, a prince and um, uh, from a wealthy family and he was practicing walking meditation and working really, really hard, kind of pushing, doing, working so hard that his feet became bloody, as the story goes. And, you know, he was sitting there and reflecting and realizing, you know, I'm working my tail off here. I Like, if anyone's putting a lot of energy and persistence forth, it's me. I'm trying as hard as I can, and I'm not getting anywhere. You know, my family's pretty wealthy. <laughs> I could ditch this whole monastic thing and go back home and uh, just enjoy the wealth of my family, and I'll just make merit. I'll make donations and stuff. So the Buddha, with his kind of omniscient mind, saw, heard this thought, saw this, and went to this monk and said, hey, were you just thinking about this? <laughs> the monk's like, uh, yeah. <laughs> so the, this monk's name was Sona. So the Buddha says to Sona, he says, listen, before when you were living with your family as a householder, you were really skilled at playing um, this stringed instrument in ancient India, it's called the, vi- the, the vina, the vina. He says, yes. He says, so when you were playing your instrument, if the strings were too taut, was it in tune and easy to play? Would it make beautiful music? He said, no. He said, well, when the strings were too loose, was it in tune? Are you able to make good music with that? He said, no. So the Buddha says, well, when the strings were neither too taut nor too loose, but when they were tuned just right, when they were in the right pitch, was it easy to play your vina and make beautiful music? He says, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it's like. So the Buddha says, so in the same way, too much persistence and energy leads to restlessness. Too little, too slack energy leads to laziness. So you should determine the right pitch for your energy. It should be in tune, not too taut, not too loose. So that's the kind of energy and effort we're looking to make. It's not too tight, not too loose. Another place where there's a, in the text, a a deva comes to the Buddha and asks him, how did you cross the floods? The floods are these uh, various forces that take over and flood us internally, the flood of sensual desire, the flood of becoming, wanting to become something into the future, the flood of views, I'm right, I know, they're wrong, the flood of ignorance, delusion. How did you cross the floods? The Buddha said, by neither hurrying nor tarrying did I cross the floods. When I tarried, I sank. When I hurried, I was swept away. So again, there's that sense of the balance between. So effort is how we apply our energy, 
how we use it. And in the Noble Eightfold Path is a very specific description of what it is to make right effort, wise effort on this path. And this, uh, this teaching is about understanding that the mind is always learning something. The mind is like this, um, it's, it's plastic, it's malleable. It's always being shaped by experience. So one, one of the analogies is if you picture like these hills, if there was no vegetation on the hillside, say there was erosion, there's no vegetation, and it's raining, every time the water goes down the hill, it starts to carve a channel, a little cut in the hillside. And the more the water flows down that channel, the deeper that, that, uh, that cut in the hill becomes until that's the way the water always goes down. So that's like our mind. Every time we do something, every time we think something, every time we feed an emotion, it carves a groove into the mind. The energy goes down that channel. This is the, what we know today as the property of neuroplasticity. And Donald Hebb's that neuron, neurons that fire together, wire together. So in, uh, in the Buddhist tradition, in Pali, the word for meditation is bhavana. That's the word that we translate as to meditate. And literally it means cultivation. To cultivate. What is it that we're cultivating? If you've ever tended a garden, you know that when you tend a garden, you've got to do two things. First, you have to look out for the weeds, which are the things that you don't want to grow there. And you have to take care of those. And the second thing is you have to make sure that the things that you do want to grow get the proper nourishment. Sunshine, good soil, and water. So this is right effort. Weeding the things that you don't want that aren't helpful and watering the things that are helpful. Shaping the mind in such a way that we're cultivating healthy, wholesome, positive qualities. This is expressed uh, one way in the, in the texts. The Buddha says, whatever the mind thinks about and frequently ponders upon, that will become its inclination. Whatever the mind frequently thinks about and ponders upon, that will become its inclination. So how do we shape the mind? How do we use our energy apply it with effort in a way that's going to be supportive. So this is in the, in the Eight Noble Eightfold Path, this is called the four great efforts. That we work to weed the things that are not helpful and to strengthen the qualities that are helpful. I'm going to just read you the actual uh, passage from the from the Samyutta Nikaya where, where this, uh, one of the places this teaching shows up. What is right effort, monks? There is a case where a practitioner generates desire for the non-arising of unarisen, unhelpful states. They make an effort, they arouse energy, they apply their mind and strive. There's a whole lot of doing there. 
generates desire, makes an effort, arouses energy, applies the mind, and strives. There's that that sense that we're really applying, paying attention to what's happening. So there are four efforts here. The first is about abandoning, and I'm going to say more about what what each of these means and how to practice with it. See how far we get. Um, abandoning unhelpful states that have come up. That's one. The second is the unhelpful things that aren't happening, steer clear, avoid them, okay? So if you're not someone who's jealous, don't start pondering things that are gonna make you feel really jealous, okay? So abandoning, avoiding the ones, the ones that are not helpful that aren't present. That's on the weeding side. On the cultivating side, it's about appreciating the healthy, positive qualities that are present and cultivating the healthy, positive qualities that are not yet present. So the distinction here is between helpful and not helpful, or what's often translated as skillful and unskillful, wholesome or unwholesome. And the word in Pali is kusala, Kusala, which also means uplifting, skillful, wholesome, healthy. And what defines a particular mental state, quality, or intention as skillful versus unskillful is whether or not it causes harm. Very pragmatic. Does this lead to harm for myself or others? So in some sense, it's a very dualistic model right? There's skillful, there's unskillful. Life is more complicated than that, of course. Things are multifaceted. Um, Our motivations are often mixed. It's not always cut and dry. Uh, For example, anger can be protective, you know? Anger can also be destructive, depending on the context. So it's important to keep in mind uh, our own intelligence in applying this and not, not make it too black and white, but really looking at what's helpful, what's healthy here. And learning to tell the difference between skillful and unskillful. This is wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to discern what's helpful from what's not. Wisdom sees skillful and unskillful. Wisdom knows suffering and the end of suffering. So how do we tell the difference? The skillful qualities tend to have a brighter quality, a a brighter tone to them, an energetic tone. For example, patience. Notice what it's like to hear these words, patience, kindness, generosity, honesty, clarity, determination. Right? They have a certain tone to them in the mind. We can feel that. We can become familiar with this sort of nourishing, uplifting, bright tone versus impatience, frustration, craving, greed. There's often a contracted quality or a jangled quality or a blurred quality or bristling. So skillful versus unskillful, we can start to get a felt sense of these. So I wanna talk a little bit about each of these aspects of right effort, abandoning, avoiding, cultivating, uh, abandoning, avoiding, appreciating, and cultivating, and how we do this. 
So abandoning, that's a pretty strong word. It doesn't mean running away. Uh, it means that we change our relationship to the state, that we're not, not feeding it or spinning in it, becoming consumed by it. So to abandon unskillful states, first we have to notice them. And this is one of the things that practice does. Like if you've been sitting there realizing like, wow, look how much greed there is, or look how much self-centeredness there is, or look how much aversion there is. This, you know, like my practice is terrible. No, 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 it's working. It's revealing the unskillful states that are present. It's shining the light of awareness on them. Your job is to see that and know that clearly and not feed it, not get caught or lost in those states. So practice reveals the struggle. It reveals the unskillful states. It's like, wow, look how much pressure I'm putting on myself. Or we notice how much we're beating ourselves up. That inner critic has become such a strong habit. It's like the status quo. I don't even realize that it was there. Or maybe in your yogi job, you realize like, why am I stressing out so much about wiping down the tables? It's like, it's just wiping the table. I don't have to, no one's watching me. I don't have to get it right, you know? So we, we start to see the way the mind's patterns. Remember, everything we're doing, how are we doing it? What qualities are we bringing to bear? Whether it's following your breath or cleaning a toilet or walking up the stairs, how are we engaging? How are we shaping the mind? So I remember at one point, you know, on retreat, brushing my teeth in the evening and realizing like, Jesus, I'm gripping this toothbrush really hard, you know, like, it's like, relax. It's like, there's no rush here. It's okay. You're going to like wear the enamel off your teeth. We start to see the, the patterns that are, that are present in our life. Uh, planning, rehearsing, replaying old wounds, or just the accumulated stress and pressure of modern life. So abandoning means, first of all, seeing these states when they're present, but then learning to put them down. Learning to not get too involved, to not get caught up. Learning how to just let something be, rather than fighting against it, or getting swept away. So you can ask yourself, very simple question, when there's some unskillful state that's come up, do I wanna follow this? Do I wanna cultivate this? So whether it's fault finding or aversion, when you notice that tone, that quality, ooh, this doesn't feel good. Ask yourself, step back, ask yourself that question, how am I shaping the mind? Do I wanna follow this one? Do I wanna etch that groove deeper in? No. How do I put this down? How do I just let this be? That's the skill, that's that letting go muscle that we're learning. So our tendency is often to go into these places when there's a difficult emotion that comes up or some painful place to kind of get consumed by it. When we focus on something, what that does is it amplifies it. So if you're feeling aversion and you start focusing on it, it's going to get bigger if the mind isn't really clear and balanced.
So part of right effort is developing the ability to choose more wisely when to stay with difficult states and when to move away. So Heather spoke a couple nights ago about these nervous system tools, learning to stay balanced, being able to take a break, to orient, to ground, to pendulate between something difficult and something more resourced. So sometimes working with a difficult or unskillful mind state means backing away, recognizing I don't have enough resource to be with this right now. Don't go in if you can't come out. Very, very important principle. If you don't have the balance, the mindfulness, the spaciousness, the resource to take a break from something, don't go in. Distract, put your attention somewhere else consciously. Say, I'll deal with this later, not now. Don't quite have the right conditions to be with this. Sometimes we don't have a choice. We just get, you know, stuck with something that comes up really strongly. Then we do the best we can. We draw on our strength and our resilience to meet it. The cultivation of the positive qualities that we'll get to in a little bit, one of the things that does is it helps us have enough resource and resilience to return to the unskillful, difficult ones so that we can be with them in a balanced way, investigate and understand them more clearly. So the first part of right effort is abandoning, putting down, learning to notice the unskillful states that have come up and just checking, how am I relating to this? Am I feeding it? Am I getting involved in it? Can I step back? Can I just let this one go by, right? Sometimes we can just disengage. It's like, nope, don't need to go there. Other times something catches us and it's like, okay, let's work with this. Do I have the resources to be with this or not? So the second dimension of right effort is avoiding. This is really important. If anger hasn't arisen, if your mind isn't angry, protect it. Be careful with what you do with your attention so that you don't end up wandering into anger. If you're not feeling envy, great. Protect your mind. Guard your sense doors. Guarding the sense doors doesn't mean blocking things out. It means paying attention to where the, where the mind is going. Because it's always seeking something. And if we don't pay attention, it's going to end up in trouble. You know, that person has nice slippers. My slippers, I don't find out what brand that is. I get those after the retreat, right? Oh, now I'm craving. Why? Because the attention started wandering. There wasn't craving five minutes ago. So avoiding means protecting the mind from wandering into territory that's going to stir up unskillful, unhelpful states. It also means getting to know the places where we get stuck and starting to steer clear of those. So one of the kind of hallmarks of being human is that we want stability. We long for security. We want to feel oriented to something that's familiar, that has a sense of staying the same a little bit because everything's always changing and that's destabilizing. If, we, if it's destabilizing, if there isn't clear awareness, and loving kindness in the mind. 
that's the benefit of this practice, is that as, the, as those wholesome qualities get stronger, the mind isn't shaken by change. It can stay present and clear and balanced in the face of an unstable, uncertain world. So, but because we seek that stability, we'll take, we'll take it in any shape. And often, the shape it, it comes in is that familiar, painful place because it's, because it's familiar. So I, I know what it's like here. I know how I am here, whether it's fault finding or nitpicking or worrying, stressing out about things, planning, judging, evaluating, nursing old grudges or catastrophizing about the future. Have you noticed the way the mind does this? Why? It's just like stuck in this groove because it's what it's been doing and it feels familiar. So I know, I know who I am here and it's stable. So avoiding this aspect of right effort is about recognizing where does the mind get derailed? Where are the ruts that I get stuck? And, and trying to catch it before you get into the rut. So that as you're sitting, if you notice the mind starting to wander a little bit into the past, you're like, oh, I'm gonna start beating myself up in a second. I know it's coming. <laughs> Back to the breath. Or it starts going into the future about, oh, I'll do after the retreat. Uh, if I follow this, I'm going to start worrying in about 45 seconds. <laughs> Come back to the breath. So avoiding the unskillful states that the mind can get caught up in by catching it before it gets there. Not focusing on the things that irritate you. You know, so there's that yogi who wears those pants that you don't like or something. Don't look at them. <laughs> Just avoid it. Why stir up more aversion? There's enough already, you know? (laughs) Again, this is not about suppressing things. This is about taking care of the mind. When you're growing a garden, if they're deer in your neighborhood, you put up a fence. Or they're going to come eat your vegetables. It's not that you hate the deer, you just want to grow a garden. So It's the same in our mind. Put up a little fence, protect it. Make sure it's not wandering into dangerous neighborhoods. This is important. This mind is precious. Its capacities are immense. This heart and mind is difficult to fathom the potential for freedom and awakening, for opening, for love and connection. Are we taking care of it? Are we protecting it? One generates desire, makes an effort, arouses energy, applies the mind, and strives. The Buddha wasn't joking around. This stuff's important. He's saying, get on it. In tune, not too tight, not too loose, right? This is from the Dhammapada. Do not think lightly of evil, saying, it will not come to me. Drop by drop is the bucket filled. Likewise, the fool, gathering it little by little, fills themselves with evil. 
So again, this is the kind of dualistic model from the, from the translation, but that sense of that which causes harm. So the skillful, how do we cultivate the skillful? So this practice is designed to cultivate skillful qualities. The primary skillful qualities that we are cultivating in this practice are mindfulness and concentration. Those are factors in the mind, they're not personal. Warren is not mindful. I'll happily admit that to you. Mindfulness is mindful. Warren is a basket case. <laughs> Warren's a Jewish kid from Jersey who's stressed out because people have been trying to kill his, you know, lineage for millennia and, you know, like all that stuff. That's the personality. That's the history. Mindfulness and concentration are potentials, they're qualities in the mind that we can cultivate. We cultivate loving kindness. This is another very important quality on this path. So it's a challenge to actually cultivate the wholesome because of the negativity bias. So if I were to ask you to name all of your faults and shortcomings, and then I were to ask you to name all of your strengths and good qualities, which would be easier, right? We tend to be able to rattle off the things about ourselves that we're like, yeah, kind of not so good there. could be a little better there. This one, you know, uh, kind of embarrassed about that one. Ask you about your good qualities. It's like, uh, hmm, I meditate? <laughs> you know, it's harder to come up with those. So this is because we haven't been practicing right effort. We've only been focusing on the unwholesome. Remember, there are four great efforts, not just two. There's tremendous emphasis in this tradition on turning the volume up on the beautiful qualities in the mind. This is really important. There's a huge emphasis on developing a really firm internal basis of well-being, of happiness, of healthy pleasure, enjoyment, resilience, a mind that's happy, that's content, concentrates easily. And a mind that is concentrated sees the truth. So the development of wholesome qualities is essential for the practice. Again, from the Dhammapada, do not think lightly of good, saying it will not come to me. Drop by drop is the bucket filled. Likewise, the wise one, gathering it little by little, fills themselves with good. Generosity. Kindness. Integrity. Gratitude. Patience, aspiration, contentment, stability, wholeheartedness, joy. Again, notice what it's like just to hear those words. Something stirs inside, yeah? You can feel the resonance. If you didn't know each of those qualities, if you didn't already have that in you, it wouldn't touch someplace inside. 
So where are we starting from? How are we practicing? When you pay attention to the breath, when you're lifting, moving, placing, are you doing it with patience, with love, with kindness, with interest, with aspiration, with contentment? Or are you doing it with frustration, with striving, with pushing, with judgment? Well, guess what? How we're practicing is what we're practicing. If you're practicing with frustration and judgment and striving, that's what we're shaping in the mind. Right effort is part of the Noble Eightfold Path. It's not just breathing in, breathing out. How are you breathing in, breathing out? How are we applying the mind? So to ask yourself, how am I practicing? What's for my welfare here? my deepest welfare. So the good news is this path can actually be enjoyable. (laughs) It can be pleasurable if we're bringing these qualities to the way we're practicing. Humor, lightheartedness. This uh, first teacher of mine I mentioned earlier, Manindra, uh, Joseph and Sharon like to tell the story of uh, being with him in Budgaya and some of the Westerners who were gathered around him at that time asking him, Manindraji, why do you practice meditation? Asking the master, why do you practice? And, you know, really curious what he was going to say. And he says, I practice Dhamma so that when I'm walking into town, I don't miss the little purple flowers by the side of the road. That's right effort. Recognizing that the need to nourish the wholesome qualities in our mind. We can't, we can't complete this path on will alone. You, you can muscle through a week-long retreat on will. Month long? No, you'll hit a wall. The heart needs nourishment to sustain itself. We have to allow ourselves to be uplifted. So the wholesome, the skillful qualities of mind are a different kind of pleasure. It's not the same as sense pleasures. It's not like eating a cookie. It's more sustainable. It's more lasting. It's a pleasure that's not, that doesn't come from sense contact. It comes from putting aside the unskillful and aligning, attuning the heart to that which is beautiful and helpful. So how do we appreciate the skillful qualities of mind? Again, the first thing is to notice them, to notice what's already present. We need to look. We need to slow down long enough to notice, pause, check, put aside the unhelpful, unhealthy patterns, and then listen, be on the lookout for, okay, what's good here? What's uplifting? What's steadying? What's reassuring? Sometimes that might be the nourishment of the surroundings. We can receive nourishment from sense contact from healthy sense contact and letting that in. You know, feeling the ground, 
beneath you, feeling that sense of groundedness, whether standing, walking, seated or lying down. Maybe you pause and just listen to the frogs. Don't just listen to the frogs. Notice the skillful qualities of mind that are present. Patience, interest, appreciation. If you notice them, they will grow. That's the sunshine and the water needed to grow that garden. So to appreciate the skillful qualities means first that we notice them, we're actually attuned to them, and then we linger. You actually have to take it in, let it nourish you. So one or or two images I want to offer for the sense of lingering and letting in the wholesome, the good to nourish you. So for example, you know, someone holds the door for you. That sense of feeling touched in the heart. And then say, oh, there's some gratitude, appreciation. How lovely. Just move on. Let it, let it in. Let yourself feel it. Notice the, notice the quality. Let your mind absorb it. Soak it in. Like a cello, if you pluck the string, there's this whole large wooden body of the instrument, and then that string vibrates, and the sound amplifies. That's the lingering, staying with it, soaking it in. Or like if you had a glass of water, And if I had some food dye, and I put a couple of drops of food dye in, and then the the dye would just slowly saturate the whole glass. That sense of letting it saturate your whole being when there's some skillful or wholesome quality present in your mind or your heart. So this is about appreciating the skillful. The last quality, the last of the four great efforts is cultivating the skillful. Cultivating the, the healthy states of mind that aren't here yet. The ones that haven't arisen, that maybe we're not as strong in. And so scanning, looking and seeing, what qualities do I need to cultivate? Is it patience? Is it self-compassion or kindness? Is it determination, just that sense of like, no, you can do this, stay with it. Is it aspiration? Do you sell yourself short? Oh, well, I mean, I'll get a little concentrated. I probably won't experience any kind of you know, insight or enlightenment or anything. You need to turn the volume up a little on that aspiration. You're not aiming high enough. Look and see what qualities need to be developed. Sometimes cultivating skillful qualities comes from pinging off other people. So Sharda told that story about this yogi who was walking. I had a similar walking inspiration on my first three-month retreat. Jill Shepard, who's a colleague of ours and an insight teacher, she and I sat our first three-month retreat together and I saw Jill walking so slowly, so mindfully. And I was like, dang, she's mindful. (laughs) It's like, I can do that. If she can do that, I can do that, you know? And what's interesting about picking up on those wholesome qualities from others is it's not in the mind, it's not intellectual, it's not a thought. 
we feel it, we sense it. It's like, it's like your, your system entrains to the other person's system. Like you, you, they, they become a template for you and you pick up that quality. It's like, oh, that's what it feels like. Sometimes we need that contact with someone else to remember to access that quality and then we can cultivate it in ourselves. So all of this effort, abandoning the unhelpful mind states, choosing when to be with them and when to move away, avoiding the places that we know are not going to be helpful, staying out of trouble, appreciating and amplifying the healthy qualities that are here, and cultivating the ones that haven't come in yet. What we're doing here is we're creating an inner atmosphere in the mind an atmosphere for learning and insight. Learning occurs best when we feel safe, connected, trusting, appreciated. So we're learning to cultivate that relationship with ourself. These qualities of kindness and care and understanding, transforming that inner environment to one that's conducive for learning. The point of cultivating wholesome qualities is not just to feel nice. That's actually a byproduct. The point of cultivating wholesome qualities and abandoning the unwholesome qualities is to see clearly and free the mind. It takes a very clear, balanced, and steady mind to see the truth. It takes a strong, loving, confident mind to let go into the unconditioned. So we are creating those conditions one moment at a time, feeding the wholesome, starving the unwholesome, creating those inner conditions so that the mind can see clearly and let go, so that it can move beyond this whole realm of skillful and unskillful, this conditioned world. The beautiful thing about it is that as we, as we walk this path, as the skillful qualities grow, the unskillful ones become fuel for awakening. Like Dara was speaking about last night, the hindrances actually become part of the path instead of a hindrance. When there's mindfulness and patience and concentration and kindness in the mind, when difficult unskillful states arise, we're able to be with them and then those actually strengthen the skillful mind states. They become the fuel, the source of more mindfulness and concentration. It's like compost. I want to end with a short quote from Tanisaro Bhikkhu, Tanjef. Just going back to this sense of not too tight, not too loose. Good things always take time. The trees with the most solid heartwood 
are the ones that take the longest to grow. So we do the practice, focusing on what we're doing, rather than getting into an internal dialogue about when the results are going to come, what they're going to be like, how we can speed up the practice. Many times our efforts to speed things up actually get in the way. Good things always take time. The trees with the most solid heartwood are the ones that take the longest to grow. Thank you for your kind attention. May this be a benefit. Let's just sit together for a moment. So we have time for some walking, and then we'll come back at nine o'clock for the last sit with a little chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.